What's up, everybody? Happy Thursday. Welcome to Bet to Win here at Blue Wire Studios at the Win Las Vegas. I'm your host, Joe Fan. Not one, but two guests today here on the program in studio. We've got my guy, Pat Light, Win Bet brand ambassador, former Major League pitcher. We're going to talk about what's coming in the second half of baseball season. So many storylines to cover, not just the All Star break, but an incredible wild card race set up between his Red Sox, my Mariners, and other players around the American League. Uh, as well as the Juan Soto trade talks, the biggest story in sports right now. Also going to have my guy Nick Dayus on to preview UFC London. But first, I've got to get to an unfortunate L to hold because, oh, at plus 850, I thought my guy Julio was going to win the home run derby. He hit more home runs than anybody on Monday night, and it wasn't close. He hit 81. Juan Soto only hit 53. Juan Soto, a cakewalk to the finals. You kidding me? Like it's Jose Ramirez and then Albert Pujols. He comes in fresh. Meanwhile, Jose, or not Jose, Julio had to go first in both of his rounds. He puts up two 30 burgers. Again, 81 total home runs. He was three feet shy in the final round of getting the extra 30 second bonus. My guy got robbed, but boy, did he put on a show. Would have been fun to win the money, but uh, certainly as a Mariners fan, uh, exciting to see the young 21-year-old rookie, the phenom in the Pacific Northwest, take the baseball world by storm. He was the story of All-Star. Uh, it wasn't All-Star weekend. That's in the NBA. But the All-Star break in Major League Baseball in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium. Enough of my yapping. I want to bring this guy in because we're going to talk more about Julio and my Mariners. Pat Light's in the house. Friend of the program is here in Vegas in studio at the win. Uh, former Major League pitcher, host of the Sorry We're Closed podcast, and a WinBet brand ambassador. Now owns a series of bars, as he was just telling me in Hoboken. Much much more fun than the journeyman life as a relief pitcher. Pat, welcome to Vegas, man. Dude, it's great to have I, you here. I appreciate it. I love Vegas. It's been a little bit since been out here. But yes, owning bars, significantly more fun than bouncing around the minor league. We have so much to talk about in the game of baseball that has been... Uh, the All-Star Week was enjoyable. The break was great. Um... I'm just curious from a player's standpoint, how much politicking goes into guys who want to make the all-star game? Do guys care? Is it a chore to go? Is it how much the difference in the guy who's going for the first time and you're, you know, you're Mike Trout who's like, it's every year he's got a plan on that as opposed to getting a four-day vacation. What's the conversation like in the clubhouse? I can tell you in the minor leagues, it's a chore. You don't want to go. You want the three days you get off. However, when like you talk the futures game, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you, the futures game is cool because you're like, all right, well, my team thinks I'm good. Everyone thinks I'm good. I'm probably going to the big leagues. But when it comes to the big league all star game, and granted, I was never enough you know, good enough to be in it. When it comes to the big league all star game, you know, you have Hall of Fame implications on it. Yeah, there's different nuances to the big league one that I'm sure most guys still want to go to it. But guys like Mike Trout, who are going to be in the Hall of Fame regardless, they're like, oh, well, I prefer the, probably the four days. Spend some time with the yeah. family. Yeah, some rest and relaxation as opposed to a media tour. Yes. And three yes. days of putting a smile uh -huh. on and getting mic'd uh -huh. up during the oh, game. I yeah. get that. Oh, yeah. Um, it's sort of wild. The American League has won nine straight All-Star games. Yes. The, uh, the American League's better. This just seems so improbable with two lineups and pitching <laughs> staffs that are filled with the absolute best of the best. Nine in a row seems super improbable. Is that just fluky or, or are you, you're being... I do believe American League's better than the National League. I've always believed that. American League East is by far the best uh, division in baseball, um, the, despite what Dave Roberts says about the NL West. Uh, but 
it, it probably is improbable. It, it shouldn't probably happen based off what's going on in Major League Baseball. But I do believe the American League is the, is the better, uh, the better, you know, conference, or not conference, but group of divisions. Yep. So for me, going into the All-Star break, everybody in Seattle, every Mariners fan is so excited for Julio to take the stage in front of a national audience. And we've talked about this before when you've come on. Baseball is such a regional game that you have to sort of be a diehard to really pay attention to the O'Neill Cruises in Pittsburgh who's coming out with the rocket arm and is a really fun player. But Julio's been the best rookie in all of baseball, quickest player in Major League history to 15 home runs, 20 stolen bases, and some buzz in baseball circles. But the casual sports fan isn't like, oh, yeah, Julio, he's the, he's the next real deal. So he steps up at the home run derby. He goes first. And Dodger Stadium's sort of pulling for Corey Seager in that matchup. And there's not really a buzz of like, oh, I can't wait to see what this 21-year-old kid does. His pitcher throws him a down-and-away slider first pitch. He swings and misses. <laughs> and you hear just like this, oh, like, no, here. And then as he's done all year, he's unflappable. No moments too big for him. And he swats 32 home runs in the first round. Second round puts up another 30-burger. Um, 81 home runs in all. And even though he lost to Juan Soto, I do feel like it was sort of this kind of collective game of baseball. Like, oh, this dude is the guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a coming out party for him. We, again, people like me and you know about the guy. We know he's good. We know he's very talented. He is in Seattle, which... Right now is fantastic, but overall has been uh, not great for yep. people. Uh, but it, it was a national coming out party for him. It's like when you get to play at the Bronx, you get to play at Fenway Park, you get to play at Dodger Stadium. You know, you, when you play well there, you're probably on national television. You probably have a much larger audience. So people start recognizing you. Know, Seattle is a, is a smaller market club. And when you're Julio, you, know, you just don't have that much national attention on you. And to do it at Dodger Stadium and do it in that way, I mean, he was. The king of the home run derby. It's the smile. It's the swag. Everything. It's the charisma. It's all of it. And he had a, one of the lighter moments during the All-Star game is he catches the third out and Liam Hendricks, who's mic'd up during the broadcast, both of them are mic'd up at the same time. And Julio fakes, throws the ball mm-hmm. into the stands and Liam's yelling. It's, it was just fun. And it's, it's hard to remember that he's 21 years old and think of the dumb shit I was doing <laughs> at 20. You were different because you're trying to chase a dream in the big leagues. I'm th- on it. Frat parties trying to like, you know, spit game with girls and like <laughs> try to pretend like I am smooth to any degree. Yeah. Like doing an internship of like, what's that? I got to work on a resume. What's that? And like, yeah. this dude is very different is arguably turning into one of the young faces of baseball along with Tatis Acuna and others. Um, we will talk more about my Mariners in this AL wildcard race that I think will be fascinating down the stretch with the number of different players involved. Um, but the top story, not just in baseball, but in all of sports is Juan Soto being on the trade block. And sort of unprecedented that a 23-year-old phenom, top five player, top 10 at worst player in baseball, perennial MVP candidate is on the trading block. He has two and a half years of team control. So you get three playoff races with him this year, 2022 or 2023 and 2024. What do you make of this where he turned down the 15-year, $440 million offer and now it seems like he's destined for a new home? before the August, uh, August 2nd trade deadline? You know, it's, there was obviously a meeting between the, the Nationals front office and, and a collective group came to the decision that, similar to what the Red Sox went through with Mookie Betts, you know, a generational talent, a guy that is unbelievable at what he does, but 
we weren't going to keep him long-term. I, you know, you can make an argument the Nationals are doing a better job here by making sure that Juan Soto gets the value that they want out of him, which we're talking, you know, crazy type of, uh, you know, trade packages. You're talking about a group of minor leaguers, probably some big league guys that they want a part of the trade package. So uh, the, the Nationals made the decision. They don't want to go the Mookie Betts route. This is what we want to pay for, a, for this type of talent. He's not willing to listen, probably, because he's probably and arguably worth way more. Uh, so they made a decision, and, I, and they're going for it. I, I don't mind it. So Scott Boris is his agent, and I think that's what everyone knows. If you're acquiring him, he's going to be a free agent in two and a half years. You might still be able to retain him once he hits free agency, but he's not going to re-sign early. Yeah. There's sort of this Scott Boris fear or stigma similarly to like a Drew Rosenhaus in football of mm-hmm. he is going to squeeze every penny he can out of you, whether it means a holdout or whatever. He's going to play hardball and put you in between a rock and a hard place till the bitter end. He was your agent. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you have any inside scoop about how he operates. If he is as uh, hard nosed a businessman as it seems in the public eye and how you think him being Juan Soto's agent maybe adds a wrinkle to how this plays out years down the road. Listen, Scott is a brilliant man. He's unbelievable. The operation he has going out in Newport Beach, California is outrageous. Uh, he's also awesome. So the people that think that he kind of sucks or he's, he's just greedy, he's, I mean, he certainly does what he's asked of by the people. But he is a guy that, you know, Scott is, is just someone who goes after what the players want. And in this scenario, it certainly, um, it certainly adds a wrinkle when you have a Scott Boris client because Scott not only takes into consideration what you're making as an owner in the field, you know, on the field, he's taking into consideration what you're making outside of it. And, you know, I give examples like Fenway Park where these guys like John Henry not only own the team, but they own a tremendous amount of real estate around the ballpark. And because the team is good, that real estate shoots up. So he knows you're making more money outside of just baseball. And when you have a Juan Soto on your team, he knows that real estate, he knows your outside investments are going to shoot up. You're going to make hand over fist over a guy like this. And the, the contract, whether it's 440 or, or 600, he knows it's still a good deal for the owners. So they're going to, he's going to push for it. Is he worth it? What the trade package would require in order to get him for these two and a half years? It, it's, it's, I mean, Juan Soto is, again, a generational talent. He's unbelievable. He's in the conversation with Mookie. He's in the conversation with Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, all those guys. It depends on the organization that you have. Um, If you're going to be an organization, you're not getting him cheap. So let's just, you know, it's not like, all right, well, we won't pay him in two and a half years, the 600 million. So this is great for us. You're still going to be paying him in prospects and in big league talent. It's not going to come cheap, even in the trade package. It, and listen, as a Red Sox fan, I'd love to have him. And we get rid of some guys to get rid of it to take him. I, I, I would be excited to have him because when you talk about minor leaguers, and this is something that we talked pre-show, uh, people just assume that these minor leaguers, these top talents are going to be great. I, you got to take consider. I was once a first round draft pick. I didn't pan out the way they wanted me to pan out. And I'm one of the, probably the majority of that don't pan out the way they want to. It's, you know, you're still looking for that diamond in the rough. Juan Soto has already made sure that he, everyone knows he's amazing. If I had to pick one direction right now, I'd say, yes, he's worth it. Yeah, I agree. And I get frustrated with, I understand there's a, you know, there's such a value in homegrown prospects. I mean, Julio Rodriguez, even before he came to star, had more value to Mariners fans than Jared Kelnick, who was a trade acquisition. That's not to say Mariners fans aren't pulling for Jared Kelnick or hope he's bad or anything like that, but it's different when they're your own. 
the same way NFL and NBA fans value draft picks over uh, over free agent signings or trade acquisitions from a heartstrings standpoint, yeah. face of the franchise standpoint. But people tend to pearl clutch prospects to such a degree that you're so afraid of missing out on the next Julio that you go through, you know, you kiss so many frogs along the way, so to speak, that you never get the prince at the end and you miss out on however many players. And I understand you can go, there's bad examples of overpaying for prospects, but you also look at all these teams that have won World Series who have gotten the hired gun at the deadline to get them that final push. For me, the big thing is, what is the exact package the Nationals are looking for? Because I think you can empty the cupboard prospect-wise and say, hey, we're going to spend the next two and a half years having to find a way to rebuild that. As opposed to if, if, if the Nationals come to the Mariners and say, uh, and again, this is hypothetical. I don't know what the conversations are, but if they say, we're not doing the trade without Logan Gilbert and George Kirby. And then you say, well, if you're, if you're Jerry Depoto, you're just like, what? That's tough because now I have to replace not just prospects who aren't ready for the bigs anyways, but two guys in the rotation that I'm trying to win in the playoffs with currently. So it really all comes, if you're the Padres and they say a deal doesn't start without Jake Cronenworth and Mackenzie Gore. All right, well, that's our second best pitcher and an all-star second baseman. So that's when teams, I think, are really going to have to decide what's it worth. Um, my last point on this, and one I want to toss back to you, is I think fans, when, when they pro-clutch prospects, baseball fans have been conditioned, so many of them, if you're not a Dodgers fan or a Yankees fan, even a Red Sox fan at this point, they don't operate the way that they once did. Um, in terms of spending, we've all been conditioned to be like, well, we, don't know, we know the owner's not going to spend. So then you just like, well, it has to be prospects. And we have to push back on that as baseball fans and say, you shouldn't be trying to play the money ball game that the Rays do, where they seemingly hit on every trade, every prospect, their developmental team, the minor league system is tremendous. Replicating that is going to be so much harder than saying, hey, we are going to take as many bites at the apple as we possibly can. And there's a big spectrum there from being the A's or the Rays and being the Dodgers, the Yankees, but you can still ask your team to be further up that side of the spectrum and the scale and say, okay, we're going to continue to take shots. And I know that my front office and my ownership group is going to spend. That was a lot, but I'm curious if that's fair from your standpoint, knowing how front offices work, knowing which ownership groups spend and don't spend. Hell, we just got done talking about the A's who wouldn't even get a charter plane for their all-star to get to the all-star game. It's just ludicrous that we just, we just aside, we assume that, hey, this billionaire isn't going to spend his money. Yeah. Listen, when it comes to them spending, like it, I, I, and we talked again, something we talked about pre-show at the Tampa Bay Rays is although they're great, right? They don't have World Series to show for it, really. The Red Sox, would you rather be, let's put it, a Cubs fan over the last decade or a Rays fan? Yeah, the Rays have been consistently probably a little bit better than the Cubs have, but you got a World Series to show for it in Chicago. Would you not want that? And so it, it, Everyone wants to you know, get, get on that Rays bandwagon, but when reality, you should be getting on the Dodgers bandwagon, which is the kind of the, the I'll spend when I need to to fill in the voids, but we're going to build the farm system. And they've done a great job of that in the Dodgers organization. Uh, it's a small sample size over the last five years, six years is what they've done it for. But, and that's what we're hoping they're trying to do in Boston which is taking high and bloom from Tampa. Hey, listen, you got the bankroll to spend some, but let's build the farm system so we have the whole collective group. Boston just hasn't shown that they're willing to do that yet. We let Mookie walk. We're, we're talking about Xander and Devers walking. I think it's, 
from a fan base perspective, if you're in a big market, it's it's pretty unfair not to expect your guys to spend. There's every owner will tell you priority number one is to win. Yes. But no one will tell you outside of a couple that I will do whatever it takes to win. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between the two. Uh, let's talk uh, AL wildcard because you and I both have a keen interest in that. Okay. Uh, let me pull up the standings. Um, Mariners have won 14 games straight. It's the most games won ever in a row going into the all-star break. And yeah, we're going to talk about it. As we look at the wild card standings, the Mariners currently own the second wild card behind the Rays. They're half game behind the Rays who own the one, uh, the first wild card, the blue Jays own the third wild card and two games back of them. That's your Boston Red Sox at 48 and 45. That's not a, an order in the standings I'm used to seeing, and I'm going to soak it in and be as obnoxious as possible for as long as it lasts, as this Mariners playoff drought is almost old enough to drink legally. Mm-hmm. I think from a Mariners fan standpoint, you look at this and say, they don't play the Astros after July 31st. The last 20 games they play are against teams under 500, and the Red Sox are in the AL East. As you mentioned, best division in all of baseball. It's going to probably beat up on each other with even the Orioles, who are only a game and a half back of them, who are now unfathomably competent at 500. What is your gauge on on where your Red Sox are at, where this wild card race is at, and what's going to happen in the second half? The thing that you know, if you asked me a month ago, I would have said there's gonna be four teams from the AL East that make the uh, that make the playoffs. Uh, listen, the Baltimore Orioles are sneaky good. Uh, so you have those guys all beating up on each other. The thing that I don't like, and what, this is what I'm seeing as a Boston Red Sox fan is the Red Sox kind of piece together games. We're not seeing a Boston Red Sox team that's going out there and just really a dominant team. The problem with that is that I'm watching these Mariner games and I'm seeing the highlights. I'm seeing what's going on there. And it looks like a very cohesive group. And it feels like a team that's poised for a run right now to can finish, not to mention the schedule that they're facing in the bottom, back, back half of the, of, the, of the the season. But it just feels like... like when you talked about Juan Soto trade, not worth it for the Mariners right now. They have a cohesive group that's winning 14 games in a row. This team is fantastic. You don't give up. You don't shake up that roster on the big league team right now. If you want, if they want to take away some prospects that these big leaguers have no idea about and we don't care about, okay, throw Juan Soto in the mix, see if we can have some fun. A big thanks to Pat Light, man. I could, I could talk ball, talk, talk baseball with him all day, and there's going to be some good conversations ahead throughout this, uh, the rest of this season with the Red Sox and Mariners fighting for an American League wildcard spot. Let's pivot to our second guest of the show. Second in order, but first in our hearts, it's my guy, Nick Dayas. Going to go back to the Octagon, UFC London this weekend. Nick, what's up, man? How we doing? I appreciate that intro, Joe. I'm doing good. I'm excited for this card, Joe. I really am because what they've been doing lately is they're no longer in the apex as much. And we got a little spoiled with the apex, you know, during the whole pandemic and stuff. But now they've been doing these fight nights. There was one in Long Island and, you know, basically my hometown here in New York last weekend. They're in London now. They were in Columbus not too long ago. So in a weird way, kind of feels like a pay-per-view every time the fans are back now. That's great. And the heavyweight uh, matchup is the main event. It's Thomas Spino at minus 140 against Curtis Blades. Um, you got the Brit versus the American. Uh, how have you handicapped this one uh, as we head overseas to London for this UFC fight night? Man, Joe, this is a uh, this is a matchup that I've been looking forward to. There was a video that went viral, well, resurfaced again, where Aspinall about a year ago said, 
I don't want to fight this guy. Uh, he's a bad matchup for me. He can dictate the pace of the fight. That's usually what a wrestler could do. And now this is a potential title title shot eliminator. Aspinall's been on this run. He's like this new hybrid kind of, of heavyweight who has a striking. He has some wrestling. He submitted Volkov, who was a Bellator champion, uh, a guy in the top five in his last outing in London back in March. But Blades, you look at his resume, he's beaten every heavyweight that isn't a power puncher, right? Two losses to Nganu, a loss to Derek Lewis in which he won that first round. And Joe, if the line stays put as is, this will be the first time in Curtis Blades' career that he closes as an underdog in the UFC. Do you like him then? Uh, are you betting it? Do you like him as the dog? I think my favorite bet, if I had to pick one in this fight, would probably be fight ends early. So I'm looking at the under two and a half, I think is intriguing. If I had to pick a side, I'm a big Blades guy, so I'm a little biased. Uh, anytime he's... I've avoided him against the power punchers, but when he goes up against someone who kind of does what he does also, he dominates them. Aspinall, we could be looking back at this fight if he steamrolls Blades and being like, hey, this guy's a future champ. This is his biggest test to date. He's at home. He's going to have the crowd behind him. He made invented, like I said, against Volkov back in March. But I think for me, I'm leaning towards Blades. It's... I'm not as confident, but if I had to give you a pick on here, Joe, I'd probably pick Blades. But I do like the under one and a half. I think this fight ends pretty, you sort pretty of, early. Excuse you, me. You sort of started going down this road, but what what is the fallout? Does it matter who wins? Is there already someone that's in line for, you know, is the winner go to a number one contender fight? Is this a number one contender fight based on where it goes? Does it mean more or less for each person? Um, what comes after uh, this fight this weekend? So the interesting thing with the heavyweight division is that Francis Ngannou, the current champ, he tore his ACL back in March after he became the undisputed champ. And then there's been a back and forth between the Ngannou camp and Dana White in the UFC. They can't seem to agree on a deal. There were rumblings that he might take a Tyson Fury fight so he could get paid. Now there's rumored, heavily rumored, in November at MSG, John Jones versus Stipe Miocic for the interim heavyweight title. Now, if all this goes down the way we're, we're sort of, you know, fantasy booking, Joe, I think the winner of this fight is the number one contender after that Francis and, uh, and Steve Bay, John Jones stuff gets figured out. Because what the UFC really wants is John Jones against Francis Ngannou. It's, you know, the, the greatest fighter of all time, in my opinion. He has one loss and... And it was uh, ruled a no contest because he threw a 12-6 elbow. We talked about this in the past. And then uh, Francis, who's just like, you take anyone off the street in the Vegas Strip, Joe, and you're like, this is what a UFC fighter looks like. They'd be like, yeah, it's Francis Ngannou. This feels sort of Mayweather-Pacquiao-ish where it's like, by the time it happens, is it almost too late where both guys are so washed? Certainly in Pacquiao's case. How long has it been since we've seen John Jones fight? John Jones was February 2020, right before the pandemic. Mm, that's a he long had that time. Contra yeah. Now, the fascinating thing with him is that he went from light heavyweight, relinquished the title. That's the title that Yuri now has. We were talking about Glover and Yuri a couple of weeks ago. Now, he gave up that belt. No one could beat him there. And he wanted to be a double champ and fight up at heavyweight. And 
it's weird, Joe. The, the heavyweights, they, they seem to fight at a higher, uh, higher age at a high level too. You know, if you're, if you're a 38-year-old 145er, chances are you're, you're way past your prime. But Daniel Cormier won the heavyweight title at 40 years old. Stipe is north of 35. You've seen uh, Fedor in the past. You've seen uh, Randy Couture in the past. was like 42 years old. So there's something about the heavyweights where they can fight longer. John Jones did, is doing it the right way, in my opinion, where he's, you know, he hasn't fought since February of 2020, but he's put on the size now. If you see pictures of him now, you're like, oh, this guy might have to cut to get to 265. So I think because it's heavyweight, Joe, I would push back on this being Pacquiao Mayweather a little bit. Okay. Who was, I'm just trying to recall as I can hopefully start remembering some of this stuff without always having to look it up. But a couple of pay-per-views ago, there was a dude who was older. He had the fight won. Got choked out with 30 seconds left. That wasn't a heavyweight fight, though. No, that was uh, Glover. That was, that was Glover, Glover Teixeira, that, and Yuri. And Yuri. And what, what weight class was that? That's 205. That's the belt that John Jones never lost. He kind of just said, I'm Let moving up go. to heavyweight. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's move down the card. The co-main middleweights, Jack Hermanson, minus 115 against Chris Curtis at minus 105. You don't see very often in a main card odds as close as this. Really, both of these fights. Not a lot of juice to be seen on any side, which from someone who doesn't know fighters that well leads me to believe these are expected to be great contests. Is that what you expect from this one? It's been a very long time since I've been confused by a line, Joe, and it's this one. Uh, I don't understand how this is essentially a pick em. I think Jack Hermanson is the right side here. Chris Curtis has been on a fascinating run in the UFC. He had two knockout victories over some relatively big-name prospects in his first two fights. This is a career journeyman on the, on the regional scene and some amateur stuff, too, all non-UFC. And uh, he's coming off a win not too long ago over... Uh, Rodolfo Vieira, he's taking this fight on short notice. The original opponent for Jack Hermanson dropped out of this fight. Jack Hermanson, his losses are to the top of this division, the, the 185 division. And this is a massive step up for Chris Curtis. I think Jack Hermanson should be the favorite in this fight. It's a grappler versus striker affair. And I'm leaning towards Jack Hermanson. I think this might be a a bet. I'm, I might be parlaying this in, in a lot of different parlays, Joe. It's just, it's just a weird line. I don't understand it. I think Jack should be the favorite. Where is he in line for the middleweight belt? So he had made a nice little run. He cracked the top five and then uh, it kind of, he's been on a little bit of a skid, but when he f doesn't fight the top five in the division, he dominates everybody. He, he cruises to uh, unanimous decisions and he gets, he hunts finishes, which is what I like. I think one of my favorite props on this entire card is Hermanson by sub at five to one. Now, C Chris Curtis does have amazing takedown defense, one of the top in the 185 division. But Jack Hermanson is a guy with his pace. He doesn't back down. And eventually he does, he will land the takedown in this fight. It's all going to depend if Chris Curtis could get up or not. But at plus 500, via submission, I think that is very, very enticing. Uh, a couple of uh, fan favorites are going to be in action as well. You've got uh, Patty Bimlet at minus 260 against Jordan Levitt at plus 210. And then Molly McCann against Hannah Goldie. Huge favorite for Molly at minus 425. Uh, Hannah Goldie is the plus 320 underdog. 
Anything you like in these or the rest of the card that you want to touch on that you look to either bet or add into your parlay? Yeah, I think everyone's going to be on Patty to win inside the distance. Uh, he's won all his fights inside the distance. The guy that he's fighting, Jordan Levitt, has already been going back and forth with the fans in England saying, you know, what, what's all this talk about a hostile environment? Like, that doesn't mean nothing to me. It's like, all right, man, just be careful. You know, those hooligans, the term hooligans originated in England, you know, so just be careful. Uh, Patty, again, is, is being fed another opponent to get a highlight finish. Uh, I was talking with a buddy of mine how we can't wait until we see Patty as a minus 300 against a formidable opponent because in a perfect world, Joe, what we want is another first round finish for Patty Pimblett. Everybody, you know, he just hit a million followers on his Instagram. He was putting out videos celebrating. And then we can hammer a, a plus 300 against them because he has a lot of flaws, but he's exciting and, and people gravitate to him. Uh, he has a deal with Barstool. He's one of the first fighters that they sign. Like, this guy is everywhere. And Jordan Levitt is just a very okay fighter. I, I'm reading this fight as I think he's being fed to have another highlight reel finish. I love it, Kilk. So give me your, uh, you know, I know your favorite thing to do is you put together your parlays for these cards. Do you have one that you've already built that, that you want to share with the class? Well, I think one, one fight I definitely want to touch on, which yeah. I, I can't understand, and uh, Amira Khani. Uh, Makwan, he's called Mr. Finland. Uh, last time he fought in London, he was a two-to-one underdog. I was all over it, and he got a first-round submission yep. over uh, Mike Grundy, who was a hometown guy. He's the underdog again against uh, Jonathan Pierce, and I think that's another mistake. He is a guy who hunts finishes. That's something that I look for, and there is a substantial uh, difference in the in the grappling in this fight. So I think Mr. Finland being plus 165 is also a mistake. I, and I know it sounds crazy because I told you Hermanson should be the favorite. And that was essentially a pick So you might be saying to yourself, like, all right, that makes a little bit more sense. But plus 165 being the underdog, uh, he's probably my favorite dog on the card. So to answer your question, I have a parlay of Mr. Finland. Mason Jones is being fed someone to his minus 400. And then also, I think Patty ends up winning the fight. So if you parlay those three, you get plus 358 on win bet. And I think that's, uh, I don't like using the L word, Joe, especially with a one, 165 favorite, but it's, uh, it's very close to it. It's not a lock, but he likes it a lot. Nick Davis, he's the host of the Veterans Minimum Podcast on Blue Wire's Podcast Network. Follow him on Twitter at Nick Davis 10 uh, As always, man, I enjoy it. Enjoy the fight night this weekend. Let's catch up soon. Yes, sir. Let's do it. Later, Joe. Great stuff per usual from my guy, Nick Dace. Again, UFC London live Saturday prelims at 9 Pacific. Main card starts at noon from the O2 Arena in London. Big thanks to Nick and Pat for joining the show. Uh, quick promo winning pick, and then we'll put this episode to bed. New WinBet users can receive $200 in free bets after they make their first qualifying deposit and place that first bet on WinBet. Once that bet is settled, you'll receive four installments of $50 free bets. Go to winbet.com or download the WinBet app for official rules and details. Winning pick time, instead of being up almost nine units, I'm down 1.4. The two and three record in July. I'm going to get back in my winning ways here, going to the diamond. Game two of the doubleheader here on Thursday between the Astros and the Yankees. I'm taking the over eight. Push is fine here, but I do think that 
that the starting pitchers here are going to get eaten and the bullpens are going to be tired from game one. Luis Garcia, 3.65 ERA. He's been just fine, but it has been up and down of late. Domingo Germain, uh, 4.54 career ERA. This is going to be his first appearance of the season. So you can't imagine he goes long, not to mention both these teams absolutely mash right-handed pitching. Since June 1st, the Astros rank second, the Yankees rank third, and weighted runs created. That's WRC+. Plus. Uh, Jordan Alvarez back in the lineup for the Astros. I love this pick. Give me Astros-Yankees over eight in game two of the doubleheader. That's going to do it for this episode of the show. Again, a huge thanks to Pat Light for coming in studio all the way from Hoboken, New Jersey, here to join us at the win. And then Nick Dias on to preview UFC London. Those guys are the absolute best and made for a great show. I enjoyed it. hope you did as well. I'm headed up north, the Pacific Northwest. I've got a golf tournament this weekend. And let me tell you, vibes have been high. And I decided to go to the range on Wednesday and said, just a, just a little quick range session, keep the momentum going. And it was an absolute nightmare. So. Vibes were once sky high, no longer that way, but I'll have the full recap for you on Monday. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you on the other side right here on Bet to Win. Yeah.